Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 18 and we'll be reading verses uh, 1 through 27. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, then I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the Grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was standing there with them, and when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put that sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. And as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? 
He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Did I not see you with him in the olive grove? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. As we have said throughout our study, the Apostle John did not set out to offer one more gospel that bore remarkable resemblance to the gospels that had already been produced. His agenda was focused more on helping his readers come to a specific conclusion, that Jesus of Nazareth was the pre-existent Son of God incarnated for a redemptive purpose and that by believing in him they might have eternal life. And as a result, John's gospel does not reproduce many of the things that we find in the works created by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not because those things are considered unimportant by John, but because John has a different emphasis. And as a result, we do not find John mentioning, for example, the institution of the Lord's Supper in his portrayal of the disciples' final meal together with Christ. To his way of thinking, the others sufficiently covered that. What John emphasized about that final meal together was material that we do not find in the other Gospels. John alone relates Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. John alone relates Jesus' new commandment to them, that they love one another just as he loved them. It's from John's pen that we have Jesus' farewell discourse where he speaks of going to prepare a place for them, that he is the way and the truth and the life, that he is the vine and they are the branches. It is John who speaks most about the Holy Spirit and his coming ministry. It is John who relates the Lord's high priestly prayer. The fact that John does not include everything that happened on this final night does not mean that he did not find those things important any more than the other gospel writers choosing to ignore the things John emphasized means that they did not find those things important. Gospel writers selected some things, but not other things, for reasons that were wholly their own. One of the things that we find in the text before us today is that John omits the early hours of what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The other Gospels include Jesus' time of agony spent in prayer and the sleepiness of the disciples. John skips that part of the evening and simply indicates that Jesus and the eleven crossed over the brook Kidron and retreated to a familiar place called the Garden of Gethsemane. We are told that Jesus and the disciples entered this place, which suggests that it may have been delineated by a low wall, which would have served as a boundary for others, indicating perhaps a property line. Now, we certainly cannot know this for a fact, but it may have been a 
place of refuge owned by a sympathizer or a follower of Jesus along the lines of, say, a Joseph of Arimathea or a Nicodemus or perhaps even the owner of the upper room. Whatever the provenance, it was a place that Jesus used with some frequency such that the betrayer knew of it and fully expected that this is where Jesus would retreat for the night. We are told that Judas has been busy ever since he left the upper room after Jesus instructed him to do whatever his heart was leading him to do and to do it quickly. John tells us that Judas has procured a band of soldiers along with officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now the language here suggests that there is a cohort of Roman soldiers in this company, presumably to maintain the peace, even though this really begins as a theological disagreement. We have no idea what the religious authorities told the Roman governor, but it must have been convincing enough that he felt it wise to send some of his men along to keep things civil. Well, this company of men, led by Judas, are armed. They bear torches and lanterns, even though the moon is full. And they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane with an arrest warrant for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, John never wants, uh, wants his readers to forget that Jesus is in full command of whatever is taking place. And so he reminds us, Then Jesus, knowing everything that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, it isn't that... John does not want us to consider the mental agony that Jesus was experiencing just a short while ago as he was praying, sweating great drops of blood, quietly asking the Father about the possibility of doing this a different way. John wants us to understand that in spite of the emotional agony that the Son of Man was already experiencing and the physical suffering that was about to begin Jesus was still very much in charge and that he was fully determined to fulfill all that the Father expected of him. So it isn't that the rabble entered the garden and took Jesus against his will, kicking and screaming to Calvary, but rather when they approached the garden wall, Jesus came forward inquiring about whom they were seeking. And in this way, John demonstrates Jesus' willingness to embrace the cross. How many times have we read in this gospel already that Jesus had no difficulty evading those who prematurely desired to arrest or stone him? Or how many times have we read of those who wanted to make him their king by force if necessary, and Jesus eluded those attempts to bypass the cross? Jesus could have easily avoided this arrest and all the suffering of Calvary But this is the cup that he was destined to drink, and there is no way that he would seek to avoid it. John wants us to know that neither Judas, nor the Roman soldiers, nor the religious authorities are in control of what is now transpiring, but rather it is Jesus. And John emphasizes this with what takes place next. The arresting party is seeking Jesus of Nazareth, they say. And Jesus responds with, I am he. 
Now, as we have said before, the pronoun is missing in the Greek. It is understood when translating this into English, but in Greek it is simply ego eimi, I am. Now, John does not offer explanation as to why what happens next occurs, and so we must speculate to a certain degree. But when Jesus declared, I am... John tells us that all those in the company of Judas drew back and fell on the ground as though Jesus released a minute dose of holiness along with his words, causing these unredeemed sinners to shrink back in terror. Like a series of dominoes falling away, the vision must have been not only impressive but also comical in a Psalm 2 Kind of a way. If you're not familiar with Psalm 2, that's your homework for later. But here are representatives of the mighty Roman Empire in concert with the religious authorities who claim to have a corner on the market where all things holy are concerned, and they uncontrollably and unwillingly fall at the feet of the very Son of God at the sound of two words coming from his holy lips. This would be a preview of what they and all others like them will one day experience when Christ comes in all of His glory. There are those who are in love with Christ, who will fall upon their faces and worship Him out of gratitude and fidelity for all that He has done on their behalf. There are others who will fall before Him and bend the knee, but for a very different reason. For they will know too late that He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, as they are scattered on the ground, I envision Jesus asking them for a second time, Whom do you seek? And the spokesman responding perhaps more timidly as he seeks to rise, Jesus of Nazareth? And then in an act indicative of the good shepherd that he is, Jesus protects his disciples by telling the rabble, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Now, you may remember that earlier on this evening, Peter boastfully indicated to Jesus that he was prepared to lay down his life for the Master, only to have his vow deflated by the prophetic news that he would deny the Lord on three occasions before morning. Remembering those words and perhaps seeing a tactical advantage as Christ's adversaries are in various degrees of disarray and defenselessness as they seek to rise to their feet, Peter decides to demonstrate his courage by drawing a sword. Now why he chose the servant Malchus as his initial target instead of the captain of the Roman guard, for example, or the most senior member of the contingent from the Sanhedrin, no one knows. It may have simply been that Malchus was closer to him than anyone else. Whatever the reason, Peter strikes at him, cutting off his ear, and what he receives for his feeble display of heroism is a sharp command from his Lord. Essentially, holster your weapon. And then a question designed to expose Peter's loyalties. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Now this has been an issue between Jesus and Peter, has it not? We don't know this from John's Gospel, but we know that when Jesus first began to introduce the news that he must suffer and die, Peter was the outspoken voice against such a thing after just affirming that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Peter could not comprehend how anything good could come from the death of the Messiah. He saw absolutely no spiritual benefit from the suffering and death of the one whom Israel had longed for for so long. So when the reality of this awful thing begins to materialize before his eyes, Peter attempts once again to derail the plans of God by intervening, not with words, but this time by force. And yet it is the word of Christ that overpowers Peter's sword. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, this is the Father's will for the Son. This is the reason for the incarnation. So that the Son of God, clothed in your flesh, might suffer the full measure of God's wrath for your sin, thus securing your salvation justly. And as resistant as Peter is to seeing the Messiah surrender himself to these authorities, he is stopped in his tracks by the Lord's question. And Jesus is impressing upon Peter's veiled mind that what is happening is not happening by accident, but by providence. Jesus is not offering resistance here, because to do so would be to resist God the Father. These authorities are not the ones in power. The power always resides with God. And Luke indicates that Jesus, as a, almost a final act of benevolent mercy, touches the ear of Malchus and restores it before the Roman soldiers step forward and bind him, leading him to the home of Annas. The abbreviated legal proceedings that occur over the next few hours, may strike us as confusing, and to a degree they are. For there are many who comment on the irregularities that occur here for what is considered by the Jews to be a capital offense. But as we piece the disparate accounts together, we discover that even though Caiaphas is technically the current high priest, in the minds of the Jews, the real power and authority resides with his father-in-law, Annas. Annas held the position of high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15 when he was deposed by the Roman governor Valerius Gratus and he was replaced. But according to Mosaic law, the high priest was in the position for life. So this did not sit well with the Jews. Several of Annas' sons held the position over the years and now his son-in-law Caiaphas was occupying the position but in many respects Annas was always the power behind the power. And so it was not unusual that Jesus would first be brought to Annas' home for preliminary questioning. And Annas wants to know two things. Tell me about your disciples as well as what you are teaching them. There is speculation that it was contrary to Jewish law in the first century for a person to incriminate themselves. In other words, in order to prove a case, it had to be on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And this would help explain why Jesus answers the inquiry the way that he does. He indicates 
that he has never engaged in some clandestine work that has differed from what he has spoken publicly in the synagogues and in the temple. If Annas wants to know the answer to his questions, he should just be asking anyone, just about anyone who's ever spent time listening to Jesus teach over the past three years. Surely there are plenty of people capable of illuminating the priest, for there must be thousands of witnesses. That response, however, received a blow from one of the officers standing nearby who apparently was ignorant of the law. He felt that Jesus was not being respectful to Annas and said so, to which Jesus responded by pointing out the man's failure to follow their own legal protocols. Now, while all of this is going on, Peter's in the process of making a liar out of himself. Lord, I will lay down my life for you, he had said. But out in the courtyard of Annas' home, there was an attentive servant girl who observed one of Jesus' disciples enter the home because he was known to the high priest. We do not know for certain who that disciple was. Most speculation suggests that it was John, although others question how a fisherman from Capernaum would know the, the high priest. Their conjecture is that the disciple mentioned is not among the closest disciples of Jesus, but perhaps another Disciples such as Nicodemus on the Sanhedrin or who provided entrance to Peter. Whatever the answer, it's irrelevant because the real story is what Peter does now that he is in the lion's den. This little servant girl is curious about Peter who was given safe passage into the courtyard by one of Jesus' other disciples. And so she logically concludes that Peter must be a follower of the man being interrogated now by Annas, although Peter's behavior and movements might suggest that he was disinterested in what was taking place. In any event, she says to him, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, I will admit that I don't have any idea if the servant girl was little or not. Perhaps she was 6'5", weighed 300 pounds, and played rugby for the Jerusalem Bruisers, but I'm guessing that that's unlikely. But with the courtyard filled with the remnants of the rabble that came to the Garden of Gethsemane, crowding around, wondering what will become of Jesus of Nazareth now that he's been captured, the ground begins to shift under Peter's feet in a very uncomfortable way. And suddenly he felt all eyes upon him, and the first inclination he had was to lie his way out of this, which John declares that he did. He answers her question, I am not. Now there were some who had built a fire in the courtyard because the night was growing cold and as people huddled around it to keep warm, Peter wandered nearby as well. And that's when he was confronted once again. Perhaps by the light of the fire, someone caught a glimpse of him that caused a moment of clarity and they posed the same question as the servant girl. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? Now, once you are on record as having stated one thing, it's all the harder to reverse course in front of the same people. Now you're committed. Stick with the story. And so he repeats his denial. But as the night wore on, 
Eventually, another servant spoke up, someone who had taken particular interest in Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane because this person was related to the servant Malchus, whose ear Peter had severed. And with every flickering light that fell upon Peter's face, this servant became more and more convinced that Peter was a follower of Christ. And he asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? And as they say, in for a penny, in for a pound, Peter adopted the notion that if he just kept denying it, they would eventually stop their inquiries. But no sooner is his denial upon his lips than a rooster begins to herald that dawn is on its way. And don't you know that Jesus, fully aware of the drama unfolding in the courtyard, hearing the rooster himself, was cut to the quick by the betrayal of one of his closest disciples and friends. The question is, what was the source of Peter's fear of being counted among Christ's followers? Charles Spurgeon answers that question by saying that it was Peter's fear of man, and I cannot argue with that. How many of us have denied our Lord at key moments in time because we were more concerned about what people should think of us or say of us than we were concerned about what the Lord might say of us? I wonder if the words of Jesus from earlier in his ministry came to Peter's remembrance in that moment. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Now, to safeguard against that, Jesus charts the course for his disciples. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, the way to avoid a fear of men, the way to avoid such a failure as Peter's, involves denying ourselves and joining Christ in his suffering. To remain true to Christ means that before I say yes to Him, I begin by saying no to me. No, no, no. And then I stoop and take up my own means of suffering for His sake, and I carry on. This weekend marks the remembrance of 9-11 when 20 years ago we were given a glimpse of hundreds of men and women who had said no to themselves before they put on the uniform of firefighters or police officers or EMTs, and they said yes to the needs of others. It was the fact that they first denied themselves that enabled them to fearlessly walk into the crumbling infrastructure of two buildings that they knew were destined to fall. If you want to have the kind of courage, that kind of courage, if you do not want to be afraid of men, then say no to yourself before you ever say yes to Christ. Now don't panic, but I want to return for just a moment to verse 2 in closing. Where it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. If you will indulge me for a few more moments, I want to share with you the closing thoughts of a sermon that Charles Spurgeon 
preached 140 years ago, a sermon based on the first two verses of our text. Listen to how he closed that sermon. These are his words. Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. Yes, he had probably many times been there all night with Christ. He had sat with the other disciples in a circle around their Lord on one of those olive-clad terraces, and he had listened to his wondrous words in the soft moonlight. He had often heard his master pray there. Judas also, which betrayed him, had heard him pray in Gethsemane. He knew the tones of his voice, the pathos of his pleading, the intense agony of that great heart of love when it was poured out in prayer. He had no doubt joined with the other disciples when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. He could have pointed out to us the very spot where the Savior most loved to be, that angle in the terrace, that little corner out of the way where the Master was wont to find a seat when he sat down and taught the chosen band around him. Yes, Judas knew the place. And it was because he knew the place that he was able to betray Christ. For if he had not known where Jesus was, he could not have taken the guard there. It does seem to me very dreadful that familiarity with Christ should have qualified this man to become a traitor. And it is still true that sometimes familiarity with religion may qualify men to become apostates. Oh, if there be a Judas here, I would speak very solemnly to you. You know the place. You know all about church government and church order. And you can go and tell pretty tales about the mistakes made by some of God's servants who would not err if they could help it. Yes, you know the church members. You know where there are any flaws of character and infirmity of spirit. You know how to go and spread the story of them among worldlings, and you can make such mischief as you could not make if you had not known the place. Yes, and you know the doctrines of grace, at least with a measure of head knowledge, and you know how to twist them so as to make them seem ridiculous, even those eternal verities which ravish the hearts of angels and of the redeemed from among men, because you know them so well, you know how to parody them and to caricature them, and to make make the grace of God itself seem to be a farce. Yes, you know the place. You have been to the Lord's table. You've heard the saints speak of their raptures and their ecstasies, and you pretended that you were sharing them. So you know how to go back to the world and to represent True godliness is being all cant and hypocrisy and you make rare fun out of those most solemn secrets of which a man would scarcely speak to his fellow because they are the private transactions between his soul and his God. I can hardly realize how terrible will be the doom of those who after making a profession of religion 
have prostituted their knowledge of the inner working of the church of God and made it the material for novels in which Christ's gospel is held up to scorn. And yet there have been such men. Beloved, the day will come when the eternal destiny of every person will be made known. And there will be those like Judas whose traitorous response to Christ's love and grace will be met with the words, Depart from me, for I never knew you. And there will be others like Peter whose failures, great though they be, will be welcomed into Christ's eternal presence because of what Christ has done on their behalf. Neither Peter nor any other sinner will be saved because of what we've done, but because Jesus has saved us by His grace alone, through faith alone in Him. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me to pray for a moment today.